Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. Let's Shape the Future is a show where I chat with business leaders, inspiring individuals, and more about who and what is shaping the future. If you enjoy the episode, please leave a review and share with anyone you think would also enjoy listening. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Let's Shape the Future. Um, today we're talking about the rise of esports with a guest who has over two decades working in the sports industry under his belt and now heads up one of the leading gaming organisations in the world. Jeff Moore is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Team Envy. Thank you, Jeff, for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you for having me. So did you want to provide a bit of an overview of Team Envy and the teams that sit within your organisation? Sure. So we are a multi-game organization. We're focused around Call of Duty. So we have the defending world champion Dallas Empire and the Call of Duty League. We also have uh, the Dallas Fuel and the Overwatch League. They just came in from South Korea last night or yesterday. So a few of them straggled in (laughs) fighting the jet lag this morning. Uh, So we're excited about the uh, the next season of Overwatch and the Dallas Fuel uh, compete that. We also have a, a very highly ranked North American team in Rocket League. And I think maybe we have the hottest team and maybe the best team in Valorant as well. Uh, and then we've, uh, from a, you know, we, we, we dropped our, our Counter-Strike team a few months ago. That's such a game that everyone's always looking to kind of get in with the right squad. So we may have a future, you know, never say never to getting back into Counter-Strike. But we've also been uh, taking uh, more of a role into streamers and content creators. And so just today, this morning at the office, uh, I had to get my COVID test last Friday because we're doing a big shoot in the office today. Uh, we had the Botest sisters who are, uh, it's almost a cliche, they're, they're chess streamers from Austin who are Canadian-born uh, sisters of Romanian descent. And so I think we are number one in that category in the world as a <laughs> A streaming company. I hope uh, desperately. I hope that we're leading that. But they're incredible. They're not only genius chess players, uh, but they're really funny, really popular streamers. And then we've been signing some Warzone streamers uh, lately, and some uh, content creators in different platforms like TikTok. So, um, so you know, the great thing about uh, being an organization in this space is that you don't have any hard and fast rules mm. uh, that you have to adhere to. You can just let the marketplace take you after audience and things that interest you. And so for us right now, uh, certainly esports, but also gaming, also pop culture. Mm, no, absolutely. And, and I know you've worked within a number of sports organizations throughout your career. How has your career within sports sort of evolved over time and, and what then prompted you to make the transition into esports? I know obviously like you mentioned the, the, the F1 poster. I know you, you were um, at the racetrack for a while. Sure. So, um, you know, when, when it was early on, um, I had to make a decision about getting a real job, which was important because I was my family had gone bankrupt and I had no money. But actually, it turned out to be a really liberating. Being poor was really liberating because I had nothing to lose. And so I had a real job lined up and I took the, an internship with a thing called the Dallas International Sports Commission, which was created to help Dallas leverage their uh, attraction of the 1994 World Cup, which the World Cup turns out is a big deal in many places in the world. And it was awesome for Dallas. But it was really the springboard, springboard that brought on Major League Soccer, 
uh, and really took soccer to a whole new level in the U.S. Um, uh, so we Dallas got a big part of it, uh, including the International Broadcast Center. Uh, that led me to working on moving the Minnesota North Stars to Dallas. And then I spent 18 years with the with the Dallas Stars. I was the first employee, and we worked on a variety of uh, roles and projects, including building the American Airlines Center, which is an incredible, even today, uh, 25 years later, it's still an incredible arena. Um, and so I really, you know, kind of almost went kind of uh, the whole way with that organization. But we ran into some rough times, uh, had to change ownership. And one of uh, this guy I used to work with this was a recruiter, turned into a recruiter, and he called me about the F1 opportunity in Austin. And then in America, especially in Texas, Austin just is kind of a magical place. Um, and F1 was, you know, once I did about seven minutes of research, it blew my mind because I really didn't know F1. I knew Michael Schumacher, but everyone does. Mm. And uh, and I just couldn't believe it. And it really kind of scared me, like to be the chief marketing officer, and chief revenue officer of, of, of that level of facility and, and event was kind of uh, scary. And so I had to take it because, you know, it was just so exciting. So I spent five and a half years there. Uh, the 2012 United States Grand Prix, um, we weren't even really finished with the facility. Uh, we, we put it on less than a year after we essentially formed the company almost. Weren't finished with essentially most parts of the racetrack. And it was, we couldn't sell a hot, hot dog or a cold beer uh, but it was almost a religious experience. People were crying. They were so happy it was back. It was unbelievable. And so we had a great run. We had the Summer X Games, MoGP, et cetera. Uh, I left there to join a consulting group for new uh, venues. So we did the new Texas Rangers ballpark. We did a facility, one facility in Japan, a retractable roof ballpark in Japan. But I started getting recruited to uh, Team Envy, and I didn't know anything about esports. Uh, if, if it's possible, I knew more about professional hockey and F1 mm -hmm. when I took those jobs than I did about esports. But I have four children, 21, 15, 15, and 13 now. And I knew that was totally their world. I knew that streaming, gaming, pop culture, esports was their world. And I knew that's the future. So I sat down and uh, you know, talked to them for about five hours and I was sold. And so I was hired to come in and do venue development and the district around it. Uh, events, live events, and sponsorships. And so what Envy wanted me for was you had these kind of Venn diagrams. And uh, I was also, you know, since I was in the traditional sports uh, oval, uh, you know, I, I was kind of a little bit of the adult in the room, someone who had been there and done that and would grow in hockey and brought F1 back to Texas. And so just someone who knew that it could be done and recognized the power of what was happening and then you have all these young people that know what to do. They know how to speak to the Call of Duty fans. They know what kind of shoes people want to <laughs> wear or hear about. Or so to say that I have any impact on you know post social media post, you know, nothing. Like I don't. I try not to speak when it comes to what should we do now. In you know talking to Overwatch fans, they don't call me. So I just handle the traditional side of it, uh, and then we have all the you know the smart young people and all the rest. Yeah. And has being involved in the industry turned you into a gamer yourself at all or not? <laughs> well, I'm a, uh, I'm a, I have been playing video games all my life, but I'm more of a strategy, you know, kind of a, mm -hmm. uh, a turn-based strategy. So uh, I like to go play Art, uh, Hearts of Iron 4 and, you know, and uh, try to keep France from uh, surrendering by 1940. Mm -hmm. That's what I like to do. 
So I won't see you in any of my war zone lobbies or anything like that. No, no, no. We had a we had a uh, we had an inter office tournament, and they gave me the employees gave me the gamertag OK Boomer, which I understand now was not so nice. Yeah. Uh, but but we had this guy who worked for us who's a former pro who's now a caster for the CDL, and he shot me every time within like three seconds, <laughs> and I was so pissed I didn't even get to shoot my gun. I was like, every time it was one, two, three, start, and I'd run, and I was trying to run away from him, and he would just hunt me down and shoot me every single time. I didn't I didn't get five seconds in any one of those games. My team did not do well, so I apologize to my duo partner for that. That just reminded me. I saw um, a post of yours when, when you won the Call of Duty League. Did you, did right, you got OK right. Boomer on your, your ring presentation. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, I thought my kids would like that, so. No, no, that that is that is cool. And uh, so, 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 as an industry, why do you think esports is appealing to so many? What what do you think are the top reasons that that people choose to tune into tournaments and, and follow teams nowadays? Well, I think that the first the first thing I would say is that just the scale of the audience of the games is incredible. And so, when you're in traditional sports, one of the projects we were working on uh, my last job before I left was this big project in Hong Kong, but you know, but they love building big buildings, but they don't have programming to fill them because they don't really have a culture of, you know, team sports like the West does. Mm -hmm. And so when you're, when you have the Olympics in China and you have the bird's nest and you have all these great facilities, what you don't have is any real use for them after the Olympics is over because you don't have any sort of programmatic, you know, sports scale, you know, to, to make them a useful object going forward. Esports is around the world. There are people playing these games all around the world. So the scale of the audience, the potential audience is unbelievable. Different than almost any sport. Soccer, you know, certainly is there. And the NBA becoming essentially the world's top league for basketball is a great opportunity for them. That's why their franchises are worth a couple of billion dollars each now is because they're de facto basketball for the world. But esports, um, you know, the scale of the participatory gameplay is huge. And now the question is, how can the spectator portion of it scale? And so I think that in, uh, you know, Call of Duty, there's 330 Americans, probably half of them have played it or know about it or know someone closely that likes it. And so I think that has a real chance to scale. Overwatch is a little harder game, six on six. If you don't, if you don't play it yourself, your odds of understanding that very well are probably very limited, mm. but the fantasy games have huge potential and not just inside the game, but also the content that comes out of it. The Marvel universe has shown us that. And I think that, um, you know, we're just at the very beginning. So I think that the, the opportunity for games is undeniably huge and esports as the competitive tip of that spear is proportionally huge or actually disproportionately huge. It's bigger than, the actual amount of people that really enjoy it now. So I think it's got a huge opportunity. No, absolutely. And and do you think, why do you think it's experienced such huge growth recently? Do, do you think there was a, a turning point as to when gaming and esports was taken seriously as a sport? Yeah. So I think that the, you know, just the spread of connectivity allows people to, um, you know, to, just to play with, like my 21-year-old son, he goes to university, he can still play with his, you know, his cohort of 12, 15 high school friends. They don't ever have to break up anymore because mm. the connectivity is so good, you know, in individual countries 
that they can stay together forever. Um, and then the, so ki kids are maturing younger because they're native to technology and they're growing old slower because they're retaining more of the aspects of their life that fill them with joy. You know, there's not that many coal miners anymore, right? Like, you know, you don't like the old days of I'm 54 of, you know, TV shows when I would, you know, turn on when I was a kid, the dad would come back from a blue collar job. He'd plop in a sofa. His wife would hand him a mixed drink. And then he wanted dinner because he was going to be asleep in about one hour because he had physically been working all that time. Right. Well, in the industrialization of the world, you know, now most of the manufacturing spread to uh, lower price countries, which has raised their level standard of living quite high. But it's turned most of the West into just an intellectual uh, property industry for the most part. And so there's so there's more intense work through technology, but there's also more free time. And so that allows people not to be physically exhausted from their work. They're more, they need more of a mental break from the work. And so I think that gaming now is just through movies and through just life. Uh, it's more of an accepted thing that you don't have to act like a grown up just because you're a grown up. Mm. So I choose not to act like a grown up. No, I think uh, I agree with you there. I think um, I, I hadn't thought of it like that in terms of, I knew the concept of people maturing younger. And I think that's, that's evident when you look at like what I looked like when I was 12 compared to what 12 year olds look like now. Um, but I hadn't thought of it the other way around in terms of they get older, slower. And they, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how my generation, generations to come, how long we play games for. Um, I can see it being, to be honest, most of most of our lives, if not all of it. Um, yeah, and, and really part of, you know, kind of a part of a, as we're looking to do a deal with a municipality and develop a, um, you know, a venue, kind of a custom venue, uh, part of the community asset attraction is that, you know, essentially gaming uh, and esports and pop culture events allow people to connect through their interests Whereas before, most of your friends growing up, you might have met in your school, right? Or, you know, if you went to church or your neighborhood or whatever, you had to have some geographic connection that, you know, melded you to your mm -hmm. close friends. And now people can do it through their interests, right? Um, and so for, if you want to fight social rejection and isolationism, uh, it can be through your interests. And so, especially for elderly people, um, you know, being involved in gaming is a great cognitive exercise for them. So if we want to fight, you know, the withering of people as they age, part of it's, you know, diet, you know, exercise, et cetera. Part of it is using the muscle. Right. And so, um, and so like when my wife went through chemotherapy, uh, they, she got something called chemo brain, right. It's like killing her brain. So they prescribe medication uh, and they also provide uh, prescribe plain games on her cell phone to exercise her mind because, you know, she has to overcome those negative effects. And so I think gaming and esports have just started uh, their positive impact on society, but fighting isolationism and bringing people together on something they can agree and enjoy together is ultimately going to be the best, uh, the best contribution it makes to society. Uh, to, to that point, it's, it's, it's great when you see videos on TikTok and social media of, like individuals who have have met their group their squad on 
Call of Duty, for example, and then they play for years and years, and then there's like a video of them finally meeting up, and it's like it's a complete <laughs> reverse. It's, it's to, right. to your point, it's a complete reverse of what what we're all used to. And there's you know, listen, there's plenty of things that divide us. There's you know, politics and religion and whatever it is. But how many things really bring people together? How many people could you meet and you go, oh, you like Radiohead, I like Radiohead. You like gaming, I like gaming. You know, art. Uh, you know books you know you like this like marvel universe mm. whatever it is there's only so many things that can bring you together and across age gaps right and so like when we meet with universities who want to or even now high schools um they want to get people engaged in those uh schools and those organizations because they know that if you are isolated to only interacting with your class you have a much lower chance of finishing and completing it because you need a little bit of a network, either a family or friends or uh, a mentorship or something to uh, stimulate you positively and be a little bit of a safety net when you uh, hit a, a barrier. And so if you're only involved in class or only have a roommate, that's just too much pressure on the small group of people. You need to know more people, right? And so they want to get higher engagement. They want the kids to have friends. They want to, uh, they're more likely to meet friends through their uh, extracurricular activity than they are sitting next to someone in science class. Um, and so I think that the, um, I think that it's, it's wonderful that we can get that in-person part of it too, um, because people also tend to be nicer in person than they are if they had the cloak of anonymity uh, that they can release the animus of their competitive angst through, right? So we don't, you know, there's a role for that, but, you know, not 100% of the time. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, um, so do you think, the to that point, the pandemic has accelerated the growth of esports even further? Like, I'm assuming due to lockdowns and sort of the lack of other sports being available to fans that more people have been exposed to the world of gaming and streaming and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it has. I think that there's a couple of very positive elements to it. As one is the core group got to really binge on it. You know, so the the people who uh, already enjoyed it and already were comfortable with it really got to, you know, um, go deeper into it. Whether or not it was exposed to a lot of new people in a meaningful way is always a little bit of a question because how do people really get brought into a new area uh and then become you know make it theirs and usually it's because you need a tour guide you need a friend a girlfriend a family member a co-worker someone who um who, who who essentially invites you to join them into entering this new thing oh i didn't know anything about gardening until you know so and so brought me into it or whatever it is um, and so normally you need to have a tour guide to bring you in and whether the, the pandemic allowed for more of that or not is a good question. But what it did do is it took away almost all the distractions from the people who already cared about it. And so the participatory numbers, hours viewed, hours playing went way up. And then it became, especially from the lack of competition, had a higher profile in pop culture. Mm. And so I think that, it, that the pandemic in a way was less negative for gaming than almost any other uh, endeavor. Uh, but whether it brought new people in or just gave it a better profile uh, is, I think, debatable. Yeah, I think to, to your point in terms of pop culture and other sort of sports, it reminded me of like, for example, 
George Russell and Lando Norris, the Formula One drivers, mm-hmm. when obviously their races were cancelled last year, they would then do virtual Formula One and they would stream on Twitch, for example, and, and have their fans watch them through that. So mm-hmm. to, to that point, how much do you think streaming and platforms such as Twitch and TikTok, for example, have contributed to the growth of the industry? I think they've been very helpful. I think any platform that, you know, there's beauty and grace and greatness and great narrative arcs in every popular activity, whether it's, you know, making tea or I assume there isn't cricket. I don't know what they are in cricket and I don't care to learn what they are in cricket. But but there's like when we got into F1, what I loved about it was just the detail and the quality and the passion and the, and the, uh, every team could go at it, the same problem, a different way. And then you visit the Williams compound versus the McLaren compound, the very different approaches, very different levels of of funding. And so the, the, the stories were just so great. And the, there's more like a novel than it was, you know, uh, a comic book. And so, and I think the platforms allow for the creators to have an unfiltered, unedited, you know, communication to a large group of people. And I think that, you know, 95% of the time, that's really good. Uh, and so I think that they, those all help. like watching Call of Duty League, you know, watching the Twitter that goes concurrent with it is almost as fun as watching the matches. Because, you know, you're playing a sport to where you can play and then in between, you know, you get killed uh, in a, you know, where you only have one life in that map or that mode. Mm. And then you can start firing off, you know, responses to tweets, you know, while the map, while it's still going on. Right. Uh, And so there's a lot of spice that goes with that. And so, (laughs) uh, so I think, I think ultimately it's helpful. I think the, you know, not that we're going to get the, you know, free speech versus, you know, whatever, but. I think that generally uh, more is better when it comes to when it comes to that because um, there's usually something of value. Uh, there can be some landmines for sure, but generally speaking, even if the thing that comes out, like when uh, famously there's a player named Allen Iverson who's a All Star player in the NBA years ago, and he and his coach was uh, mad that he wasn't going all out in practice every day, and and Allen Iverson was like. Man, I you know, I play my heart out during games, and I and so I I take it easy during practice. And now you know, 15 years later, healthy NBA players don't even play in every game because their teams are so focused on trying to get the most impact of their minutes that they're you know not playing them in every game to make sure that they can peak at the most important games, i.e. the playoffs. And so I think it's uh. I think it's an interesting thing that that was a super controversial thing 20 years ago. And now it's like, well, of course he was right. Of course you're not going to burn out your star player in practice, but, you know, closer to world war two, when, you know, training resembled more military training, you know, there are, I mean, I remember when I was a junior in high school, they didn't give us water during hundred degree days. We practiced twice a day because it would make us emotionally and mentally weak, you know, um, you know, and so now they're like, are you kidding? You could kill them if you don't do that. So of course you could have water, you know? So, so I think it's interesting. I think that generally more communication is better 
even if it's not in the near term. I think to, to your point earlier about the, the tweets and stuff, I think when you, if you're watching a streamer, for example, I think the chat provides as much entertainment sometimes as the streamer itself, especially if you've got, um, like, for example, I know some streamers, if, if someone donates, the, the, the message then gets read out to them. And there's, it, it really does provide a lot more entertainment value than, as you say, simply watching um, someone play the game. But to, you alluded earlier to um, content creators as well. So competitive gaming and content creation seem to have merged a bit recently. What are the benefits to you as an organization of signing individuals such as Sebasperon, for example, and other content creators? Well, you know, I think organizations have to kind of pick a little bit of a lane. Are you a competitive group? Are you a entertainment group? Uh, but it's not a strict lane. You know, you can be different things and with different people, different players, different personalities, different games. Um, but the macro trend of consumption of media means that you cannot ignore entertainment, you know, because streamers are essentially, you know, you know, it's like saying in the 1960s, you didn't believe in television, you know, like you can't deny the amount of time spent watching, uh, you know, content creators on, you know, uh, digital media platforms. And so that's one of the reasons I love, you know, the esports gaming pop culture organization uh, flexibility is that the world is changing faster than it ever has before. And you can change with it. Mm. And so you don't have to make a you don't have to be worried about, you know, the old idea was if you built Olympic stadiums, they would become useless, you know, very quickly afterwards. But now with, you know, smarter designs, you can make a stadium that fits 100,000 for the World Cup and then goes down to 50,000 for the professional team, you know, to play there on a, a annual basis afterwards, right? You can, you can have more creativity and flexibility. And so now uh, just the pure competition, I don't think is enough to draw a big crowd consistently because there's so much competition and the, the life cycle of a competitive player is so short because it's such a, a young person's you know, game. Uh, so I think investing too much just in the competitive side of it, it just doesn't have a great uh, return. I think it gives us an authenticity that we need for the space. And I also think it's a uh, still very powerful thing. But it, but it doesn't make sense to me that you would only be in that area. I think the entertainment side uh, has much more growth, much more of a future. And also the competitions are nothing if not entertaining too. So then having more of the players reveal themselves in the competition as entertainment, uh, I think is something that fans have shown that they love. So, uh, so I think it's, uh, I think that like, I, I remember I was talking to the, uh, the CEO of the Philadelphia Flyers uh, one time as a hockey team in America, and mm. he would hire all of his former players to do uh, jobs there because the fans loved him. And I said, well, what if they can't do the job? He goes, then I'll hire a young person to do their job for them, you know, because he knew that the love that people felt for them was so was actually more powerful than the actuality of the production that the person had. Right. And so we need both. We need entertainers because they're on all day, every day. And that can bring you into relationship, you know, with an organization or have that exposure. But you also need a competitive side because that's really where these peak moments of magic happen through competition because it's unscripted, 
it, you can't plan for it. It just, you know, it's really, they're competing to create these moments. Um, and there's nothing more, uh, it's just such a unique, powerful thing that can bring people together. When you have, uh, you know, your football club back before the pandemic, you know, when they would have a big win, you could have thousands of people who literally do not know each other crying and hugging and screaming, you know, together in unison, sharing this thing uh, that you, you know, how, where else does that happen? You know, it's just, it's a very powerful thing. So we're solidly in the hybrid model. Uh, that's where we're placing our bets. I think also there's a, um, an awareness and a marketing piece to having those content creators, because a lot of them have got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that, that watch their content. So is the marketing and the content sort of revenue side of the business as important operationally or more to an esports organization than say traditionally competition prize money is? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because the, the competition prize money, you're really at someone else's mercy. Mm. Um, and, you know, creating a community and audience uh, that you can access regularly uh, is a much stronger, more stable commercial platform. But I think even more so than, or as important, maybe not more so than their audience numbers, is the fact that they have the talent to draw an audience, they have the understanding of how to draw an audience, they have the work ethic to draw an audience, they have the stability, they have a lot of qualities that you want associated with your organization and even now even as we hire these content creators and then start uh, doing content together with them and our players it forces us to do a higher level of production and quality um, and then our players are better in that content than they are in just a kind of a quickie cell phone you know with no direction on what to do or whatever you people are are really self-conscious if they think they're going to look stupid mm. uh, you know who wants to look stupid nobody competitive athletes least of all so if you put them with people whom creating content is their daily fastball and they are good at it then it's more likely that that's going to go better right um, and it relaxes our players, they do better in that content. And frankly, we're seeing a side of our Call of Duty team that I didn't really know existed, but we're, but we are being more professional in our content creation as a result of the investments, investments we've made. And um, I've been really impressed with them. And then hopefully the audience responds to that well. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it is really interesting to see organizations like yourself take that hybrid model. It's, it's funny because um, a guy I went to school with has just signed with G2 as their first streamer. They, they did a, mm. um, a sort of competition over a number of weeks where they did real football and then FIFA challenges with a load of mm. streamers and, and he won it and is now their content creator. So it's, it's great. It's, it's great to see organizations not just go for, the, the the ones who are like the top one percent of people at this game but anyone at any level of the game if they're good at creating content they can go oh i can be a part of this organization i don't necessarily need to be i don't need to spend millions of hours practicing the game and to get to that level if that makes sense yeah absolutely well i think it's when you when when you look at when we talk to schools 
what they want is, you know, I mean, how many people are on the high school basketball team are going to become NBA players someday? A very small percentage. Yeah. Same thing with esports, you know, athletes making a ton of money. But there is a massively growing industry that depending on your talent and luck and opportunity and you know kind of understanding you know there's there can be a spot like it's going to be um, when i was you know 21 the job i have now did not exist it wouldn't exist for 25 years so you know how could i have you know you can't just go to a votech and learn the skills to be in the job i am now right so and so most of the jobs that you know uh people graduating from high school or college have 30 years from now probably don't exist right now. Mm. Um, and so, so, so then learning how to give effort to learn, to adapt to change and to do things they're interested in that unlock their best effort. So it's not that the old thing, Oh, you can be anything you want. Not true. You have to want it and you have to have some talent and you have to have some opportunity, but it's better to find the thing that unlocks your best effort than just take the thing that is, you know, the most appealing at the current marketplace necessarily. Mm. Um, but if you do that, you better learn to love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, as you say, I think the key is agility and the, as you say, the most people's jobs in 30 years, a lot of them, as you say, won't exist now. So mm-hmm. to me, that's really, really exciting to a lot of people that will create, seem quite daunting. Um, but as a, Obviously, as you mentioned, esports is is experiencing exponential growth and has been for some time. What do you think, if any, if there's a, a next huge milestone for the industry? Is there something that you're working towards collectively? You know, I think that um, I don't know that it's going to be a kind of a, a single variable uh, issue that's going to lead to great growth as much as probably you know, 15 things. But I do think that the rate of improvement of technology in either immersive video, augmented reality, and virtual reality is, I think, if there's any one area, I would say will we'll unlock more growth. That would be it. Just because games are such a... Um, the, the, the worlds created by games can be used simultaneously by millions of people every day, all day, forever. You know, like the, the, the worlds created an Unreal Engine, um, you know, they can, uh, they can hold, you know, a concert with a billion people experiencing that concert, concert at one time. And, you know, and so I think the, I think that's the most powerful thing. And the fact that you can have, like, I still watch Marvel movies and Harry Potter movies and Lord of the Ring movies. I know what's going to happen. I know Frodo makes it, you know, I know, you know, I know what happens and I still enjoy him. But what if the cha- the different, it was a different ending every single time I watched it, you know, I mean, then that, that variable uh, content piece is, huge and games have that right um and so i think that to me that the experience and how you both can participate in a much more realistic way and spectate in a much more realistic way as if you're in it um uh, has mind-bending possibilities it's quite an interesting point there because i hadn't thought of it like that 
I obviously like me and friends have been playing, for example, Warzone for a year and the dance hasn't really changed as a map and but you still play it because it's completely different every time you're going to land in different places there's mm-hmm. 146 different other people in the game right. and the zone's going to be in different areas etc cetera, etc cetera. there's so many variables to these that that make it so interesting every time and so to, to that point do you see big gaming events or just um or gaming matches in general becoming as popular as like weekly nfl games or mm. the world series for example like do you, do you think we'll get to a point where you go to a pub or a bar and you say to the the, the bartender oh could you put the, the dallas mv versus la thieves game on rather than saying oh could you put the the bucks cowboys game on as such uh, yes i absolutely think that will happen and i think that the um I think the technology we just talked about is also going to change the way that uh, you know, some of these venues work. And so I think that they're, um, and not just for games, not just for consumption of games, but I think the kind of the, the small group, you know, kind of cabana opportunity, you know, eat, drink, socialize, watch things. You know, let's say your brother's getting married in South Africa and, you know, you, for some reason you're not going to travel there you can essentially experience it in a kind of virtual way with a group of people that you know can only attend it through you know interacting with them from a visual and digital standpoint you know at the event and so i think that the chat you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. uh that engagement is only going to become more uh, become kind of better more high quality you saw with the NBA had their playoffs and you just saw like the kind of the digital images or the cardboard cutouts of people in the stands that is going to change to where there are some live people there. Uh, but there's also essentially changing digital audiences where that you can hear them, what they say, they'll be heckling the umpires from, you know, the world series being played in Los Angeles and there'll be people from Malaysia heckling the umpire. They can't booing them for the strike or ball call or whatever. Um, and then that's how the facility can scale from being, you know, an arena where the Lakers play that might hold 20,000 people. There could be people that really feel like they're there. There could be a, a billion people, mm. you know, uh, just make it popular in China. You can get a billion people <laughs> on our bed. So I think, I think the, I think the answer is yes. The popularity can scale like that for sure. Um, but it can do it in ways that we can, you know, maybe not even really, be able to understand. I mean, and the other thing is that the the thing that made the NFL so popular was essentially allowing people to increase the stakes of it mm-hmm. that make it more meaningful to them. Gambling and fancy football, you know, are the ways that you can make it more, more meaningful. You can put some skin in the game and make it more meaningful to you. And uh, I know that probably in England, there's not much gambling on, you know, high level soccer and things like that. But it just makes, you know, your natural passion for the outcome that much more intense, right? When you, uh, that on. and so uh, I think with esports, um, there's almost an unlimited amount to that because there's, everything's digital. There's no referees, you know, there's no referees call to, you know, to blow the match. Oh, they can't believe that. I was reading some article about a, a football game and, 1976 and the author still pissed off <laughs> at the call that led to the receiver being 
judged to be out of bounds of the Houston Oilers Pittsburgh Steelers playoff game. You know, it's 45 years ago. We may, you know, maybe time to let that go. <laughs> but if it was me, I wouldn't let it go. I'd still be fine. And so I think the fact that it's all digital it can all be tracked, you know, to the smallest detail um, will allow the stakes that people are not even just the stakes of, you know, kind of gambling on it or whatever, but also to even maybe impact the play, uh, you know, that's possible digitally. So I don't know. I think it's the hunger games come to life for sure. The, to that point, like, as you say, we, we have, um, fantasy football here for, for the Premier League and and it, it really does get competitive like you say I know it's huge in, in America with, with American football do you think fantasy esports is going to be huge in the future in terms of having a, a squad of, of five people what like one from five different teams for example and they get points depending on their um... yeah it's a great it's a great question because you know it might be just like you know, there was never a, a wired telephone uh, in homes in Africa. They just went straight to cell phones mm. because just, you know, that that tech, technological leap, you know, made cabling the continent, you know, impractical. But, you know, cell phones just instantly pop up, put a couple of towers up and you're good. So fantasy esports, which already happens a little bit, uh, if gambling comes on strong enough, quickly enough, there may be no need for fancy, right? Because then it's a, it's just a more pure uh, kind of gambling uh, on things than just fancy is almost a workaround to gambling, right? It's like, well, we're not supposed to gamble. And, but now people are like, eh, I wonder, you know, who's the next Pope? Let's gamble on it. You know, so it's like, I, I think that it's just becoming more of an accepted part of society that, that I think, fantasy sports is kind of a pale version of, of just straight up gambling and so i i'd be interested to see what happens yeah no no same here it would be uh be good to see where that goes and so we've talked about it a little bit but where do you want to see where do you think esports will be in say five years how how far do you think can you look that far into the future or or is it you just take this year and then there'll be new technological developments, which will just propel things forward. No, I mean, we're working on things as an organization that would easily take five years to come to fruition. So, um, so yes, we are. And I think the, the going back to the the effect of the pandemic, um, I think it will end up having a really positive effect because the infrastructure improvements of just what we're doing right now, you know, talking between continents over a, you know, a digital, you know, video call, uh, people are much more comfortable doing it. The technology is improving the, it's like when, when the pandemic started and there was a toilet paper shortage, you know, <laughs> yeah. in America. Well, you know, why is that? And it's because previously for the last 70 years, there's a certain amount of time you're at work and a certain amount of time you're at home. And so the industries of everything, food delivery, supplies in every way, uh, you know, what toilet paper is made for a work environment versus a home environment, how much of it's made for each one. It's all down to a really thin margin. And once there's a behavioral switch, throws the whole system off. Right. And so internet bandwidth is the same way in America. When, you know, our office has a great, dedicated internet pipe and we buy blank amount of it and we get that dedicated to us. Mm. But in the suburbs where I live, they oversubscribe it 
you know, 5X or 3X because not everyone's using it at the same time. But when everyone's working from the suburbs, they have to change the size of the pipe that goes up to the suburbs because now it's effectively a, a workplace, right? And so I think that the uh, thing that will happen, the thing that has happened already in esports is there's a lot of remote play. And as the, as the technology improves in that, it allows us to come up with a, uh, a competition and business model that doesn't have to resemble traditional sports so much. We don't have to play every match in person. Our team doesn't have to travel to London to play the Royal Ravens, right? Uh, now, it doesn't mean we can't, but economically, it doesn't make sense for one team to go over or four teams to go over. It makes sense for all the teams to go over and spend a week there and then have a, uh, have a tournament, right? Or go there for two weeks and have qualifying games and then a tournament because it's more efficient, right? Um, and so I think that we don't need to copy traditional sports league formatting schedules, maybe even have a dedicated season, you know, because that was dedicated by playing outdoors in weather, you know? Um, and so I think what we need to do is first not be enslaved to past models that were built for certain reasons that are not pertinent to us or our future anymore. Um, that it should be about audience revenue, you know, competition and finding a good balance to get the best out of our uh, competitors and content creators uh, and then let the market react oh i agree um i have no idea if i answered the question you asked. <laughs> no you did yeah it does um, i'm so sorry i get i get really rambly there no 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 no, no. you answered it perfectly um it, if there is anyone listening who wants to get into esports whether they dream of being a professional gamer or a content creator or both what would your advice be to them as the president of an organization? And so I would say just start doing it and no matter what level, because people learn by doing. Um, and so when people, like when I was with the, uh, the hockey team, people would, you know, send the resumes in and they'd say, you know, they'd be 25 years old. They would say all my life, I've dreamed of doing this but nowhere in their life experience have they done anything with it, right? Now, not always simple to do, but you don't have to wait until, you know, you would work at the highest level of it in order to be involved. So just even things like, uh, I don't know what high school is called in London, but... Uh, it's secondary school, yeah. Secondary school, but start an esports club. You know, just get 10 people together and play. Get a, you know, just go to university, Start something there, do something, just do something because you'll learn, you'll learn by doing it. Right. And so, um, so just take action because what that does is that immediately separates you and differentiates you from about 95% of the people, mm. you know, just like you do in this podcast. Um, you may do a hundred of these before you really get a big audience. Good. That means you've practiced doing a hundred interviews. You've grown your network by doing it. You have tested different equipment. You've uh, gone back and looked at it. And when you do those, you go back and look at the first 50 and you'll be, oh, <laughs> I'm, it's humiliating. Thank God no one watched those. But all you're doing is getting better. All you're doing is getting to know more people. All you're doing is improving, right? And you're just taking action, which makes you unique to the 95% of other people who are too anxious, afraid to do anything. And so 
uh, you know, so I would just say take action um, and you'll meet people and you'll learn things. And you may learn that you hate it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important to know the things you don't like as much as the things you do like. And so, you know, I would say that there's a lot of people who, um, you know, get a regular job, make money and keep your hobby a hobby. That's fine. You know, you know, it doesn't have to be your career. Um, it can just be something you love to do in your off time and being a vet is your day job, you know? So uh, I would, that's, that would be my advice. No, it's good advice. And I, I, I would definitely echo that. I think I've seen, I've sort of contemplated doing this podcast for, for a while and it, and it took until mid last year when I was like, right, let's just do it. Let's, you see a lot of people doing stuff in the pandemic because they've got the time to do it and they just think, oh, sod it. Let's just go for it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And, and, and I've been amazed by the people I've been able to speak to, that the caliber of people like yourself and, and, and the response from the audience and, and I really enjoy it. As you say, you, you get, you build your network, you establish credibility in the industry and you really start trying to set yourself apart because a lot of this stuff is long-term plays. It's, it's, it's what, what stories have you got to tell in the future when you need them? It's great to have a repository of, oh, we're talking about a random topic that, that I know nothing about where you go, Oh, actually I spoke to this person in the industry a while ago and we spoke about this. And so it's, it's so important. Or oh, I've found to really sort of put yourself out there and just give it a go because you never know it, it might fail but who cares at least you can say you gave it a go and and then you'll go on to the next thing and the next thing and then you'll find that thing that really clicks um and you take it even further forward oh, that's exactly right and also failing's underrated you know like it's um you know it's not fun uh, and what I find a little bit with my kids' generation is, you know, with social media like it is, there's so much more exposure to people's lives that there's also more exposure to them failing. And it creates a lot of anxiety because, uh, you know, you're just fed all these success stories. And then you, you know, oh my God, if that got out or that, I mean, I can't imagine if when I went to college mm-hmm. or when I was in high school, if people had cameras on their phones, <laughs> I mean, you know, we wouldn't be talking today uh, because the, you know, hot sports opinions that me and my friends, you know, uh, jokingly would shoot off. I mean, we, we did the morning announcements at our high school. I can't believe we didn't get kicked out then, <laughs> you know, the things we would just say over the intercom every morning was highly inappropriate, uh, but it was funny. So we got away with it. You know, we uh, made announcing the lunch selections unique and different. But um, so there's a, there's a there's a real fear of failing. That you know, the one thing an old saying is that uh, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. And so when we won the Stanley Cup in 1999, there was credit to go around to a lot of people. Uh, ultimately, it's always the goalie. Uh, uh, you know, in the end, but. But when you fail, when you next year we lost in game six and triple overtime, uh, it allows you to isolate. We were not good at this one thing, mm. you know? Uh, and so it allows you then to improve that one thing, which might be the most important thing because it's the thing that stood out in failure, right? And so, so failure can be a great teacher and it can be a much more clear teacher than success can. 
Uh, and that's one of the reasons I think you see so many people who have great exposure stumbling is because if all they've had for a long period of time is success and power, they're not learning a lot sometimes during that time period. They're being fawned over, they're being handled, they're being told how great they are. And so they can start getting more and more off track because they have that. And I think, you know, you could make a royal family, uh, and you know, comment here. But, but the more you're coddled, the more you get off track, right? Because no one's giving you feedback. That's why, you know, friends that you have that will say, man, Benjamin, that was awesome. Or man, Benjamin, that was stupid. Like the, the stupid comment is as valuable. It's like your immune system, yeah. right? Like when I tease my kids about things and they're like, oh, you're being so mean. I'm like, think of this as your immune system for your personality. If, if people are only coddling you, and not teasing you, you will never know how to adjust to teasing in real life, right? Someone could say something to you at the mall and you'd fall apart because you have no immune system to it. Uh, that's what, that's my justification anyway. I don't know if it's true, but um, so I think failure is, and uh, no one likes it. I don't like it, uh, but it's underrated as a uh, feedback loop. No, I, no, I completely agree. And, and just um, as a final question to you, what we we you mentioned one game earlier, but what's your favorite video game to play currently? And what in your opinion is the best game of all time? Oh well. <laughs> uh for people my age, Pong was probably the no, <laughs> I tell you, Space Invaders always got me so nervous when they would speed up. When the aliens would speed up, I couldn't handle it. Uh my favorite of all time was Defender. Uh, which you don't even know existed because you're young <laughs> and full of you know youth and life. But I loved it. I probably spent one million dollars of my family's money, quarter by quarter, on the stupid arcade machines. Um, but I like the history. I like the you know kind of the the games where you go back and you can play as you know the Western Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, one of the you know, you can be the Scots, you can be whoever. Uh, and I, I like it because you also get to learn a little bit about, you know, because a lot of, you know, the tech trees of those civilizations, you can get to make choices and learn about a little bit. Um, and so I, I, I like any of those kind of turn-based, uh, you know, Crusader Kings or Age of Empires. Uh, I like ones, a lot of people like just where you get to the shoot them up. I like farming and getting resources and building an economy, which I know is boring to a lot of people. But <laughs> I, I almost take it personally when my little villagers get raided by, you know, the neighboring tribes that kind of, I lose a little bit of, uh, of myself. When Dagger in the villagers. hall. Yeah. If I don't build walls, oh, tears me up. Do, so you're not a rocket league pro then? No. <laughs> I can't, I, I can't believe the things they can do, but I can't do it. No, no, I'm the same with Rocket League. I can I can get by with Call of Duty, but Rocket League is way past me. Um, so so j- just to finish off, if anyone wants to find out some more information about Team Envy or yourself, where's the best place for them to do so? So um, you know, we have uh, if you look up you know Team Envy or um, uh, we have you know obviously a website. We have a membership club that's free to uh, free to join um, and. We have kind of a speaker series. So uh, every you know month we'll have a fireside chat. I'm not saying that 
rivals Churchill or anything like that. But you know, we'll have our Call of Duty coach come in, and we've had a big, you know, kind of a big couple of weeks there. So, um, you know, having our coaches come in. I mean, there's more working astronauts than professional uh, high-level esports coaches. So we hope that's a value to hear directly from one. Uh, so I would say that I'd say signing up to our membership club, which is free to join, uh, is a good way to get kind of curated content mm-hmm. and uh, first look at videos and things like that. We do. That's what I would do. Good. Uh, so, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been, it's been an absolute ple- uh, pleasure. Um, I'm really excited to see the continued growth of Team Envy um, and the esports industry as a whole. And, and fingers crossed for the upcoming tournaments you're competing in. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure uh, talking to you today. So another episode complete of Let's Shape the Future Series 2. Thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy the content, please don't forget to subscribe and share with any friends, colleagues, family, or anyone else you think would enjoy the content. We've got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. Have a great week, guys.